Well, uh, we're involved in this um, this uh, study, if you will, is uh, <clears throat> these uh, four questions. Now, I said, <clears throat> again, that there are, in my judgment, four questions. Anybody remember now? What's, what are they? Let, let's do a little, little review. What's the first question? Is there a God? <clears throat> God? Kind of got to settle that, right? <clears throat> if there is. If there is a God, the second question is what? What's this God like? The character of God is a significant issue with respect. If there is a God, that you haven't settled a lot right there. The question, what is this God like? You know, because uh, there are some people that uh, their view of God, I'm going, whoo. Uh, I, I will tell you this. It is interesting. Um, back in the 1700s, when John Wesley was uh, talking to a person, he actually said this uh, to a person. I, when I read it, I, I went, okay, I, I've been there. Wesley said to a person who was discussing God with him, Wesley said this, your God sounds a whole lot like my devil. <laughs> wow, <clears throat> that's <clears throat> a little messed up, isn't it? <clears throat> that's a little messed up. <clears throat> Wesley confronted him and said, what you're talking about God here sounds more like what the devil does in the world. And so <clears throat> that question is critical. So the third one we've been working on is what? Yeah, what does this God expect of me? Now, that's because we believe, I think having read Scripture, that, that a relationship with God is not just a transaction. I don't just sign a card, pray a prayer, it's over. Uh, that's kind of what I call transactional Christianity. You pray the prayer, you get your button, and you, know, you leave. But, but the idea of a relationship, in a relationship there are activities and actions that are uh, a part of that. You know, uh, kids used to at the school, I don't know if they do anymore, I, I'm always hesitant to try to be culturally uh, 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 relevant because I'm about nine years behind. <clears throat> um, but, you know, they would, always, they would say, we're going to DTR. And I go, well, what is that? They go, define the relationship. And I said, I'm not that cool yet, <clears throat> you know. <clears throat> we're going we're gonna to DTR. We're going to define the relationship because, you know, what is it? So, if this is a relationship with God, what does this God expect? Or what does this relationship require of me? Um, um, I'm not going to say that. Here we go. <clears throat> Number four. <clears throat> no, I saw a movie that, that and, uh, you, you'll, be, you'll, you, you'll not like me if I do that. A fourth question is what? Remember this one? We haven't talked about it. <clears throat> yeah, what can I expect from God? That's a big deal. What, what is it that a person can actually expect from God? There are people who tell you all kinds of stuff. And uh, there's all kinds of pain and difficulty, I think, that gets caused by, in some, my, my judgment, that some people are saying some stuff that I just don't think you can expect from God. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that at some length. So, so we're really trying to say, what does, what does God expect of me? Now, one of my jobs at the university, uh, it, besides stamping out ignorance, um, <clears throat> and they're good kids, <clears throat> is uh, <clears throat> we try to help place them into jobs when they graduate, <clears throat> you know, uh, and many of them will be youth pastors or senior pastors or stuff like that. And so um, uh, in, in thinking about this question, at least, here it is, <clears throat> what does God expect of me? That's it. Uh, one of the things that I've always tried to work with my students uh, in this process is whether it's an internship or <clears throat> whether it's a full-time position, 
uh, when churches contact them, and this may surprise you. I, I don't know. Uh, it, it may surprise you that one of the things I require of them is to, to supply a job description. You might be surprised. Lots of churches don't even know what those are. And, and it's because I know that the church and the pastor and the people, let's say there's 150 people there, there's 150 job descriptions, right? Uh, that, that what do they expect from the student? I had a student one time who went to do an internship, and they talk about this. I told them, don't do it. They did anyway. So uh, went to this internship and started in May and, and was going to leave in, in uh, the end of July or the, somewhere in July because they had something to go to. And the pastor said, no, you're not leaving until August. That's the way we planned this. What? So, so you know, this idea of expectation. Uh, in fact, I have an, an, an he, he's dead now, uh, so I can talk about him. Um, but I had a guy that I knew years ago when I, I've known him since I was seven. And this was probably 10 years ago. Uh, and he calls me up one day and it's in a little church in Texas. Uh, if you're not from there, it's Nagcog dishes. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> I'm, you know, <clears throat> if you're from there, it's Nacogdoches. <clears throat> That's right. I know, well, stop. Uh, uh, anyway, a little church there. It, it's, you know, been a little church forever. And there were some good people there. But this friend of mine who had been a pastor before calls me up and says, uh, hey, Cliff, we're looking for a, a pastor. And uh, I'd like to know, just said, I'd like to know, you got any students that want that? <clears throat> See, I knew the church and my first reaction was no. <clears throat> I mean, I do. I know the church. I know the people. They're nice people but they're from East Texas. <clears throat> Doug knows what I'm talking about. Try it. Try it. And <clears throat> so I said to him, I said, well, yeah, we have some students <clears throat> that'll be graduating. And, and if you're interested in an entry level pastor, you know, kid that's coming right out of school and they didn't have any options. So yeah, we're, we're interested. And <clears throat> so I said to him, I said, uh, could we begin this process? Would you send me a job description? And he went, huh? I said, yeah, I, I, his name was Gail. <clears throat> and I said, Gail, I, I, I need a job description. And then he said this to me. What's the matter? Aren't you teaching those guys what they're supposed to do? <laughs> now it's my fault. <clears throat> and I just said to him, uh, Gail, I am. But I don't know what you expect them to do, <clears throat> right? I don't know what you expect them to do. I'm not sending a student to you without you being explicit about your expectations. You know, how many hours do they have to work a week? Do they have to visit everybody in the church before the year's up? Do they have to visit the hospitals? You know, all this kind of stuff. One week later, I got a job description. Handwritten in pencil. <laughs> Guess what? Guess who wrote that? Gail. <laughs> Put it in my desk. Never told a student about it. <laughs> because here's a church hasn't thought through their expectations. All relationships have expectations. There's some sense of what, what, what can I expect from this? And so in, in our relationship with God, what can we say that he expects of us? What, what is it that would be uh, consistent with that? You know, Jesus said it. Let me give you a couple of here's in Matthew 7. You just jot these down. <clears throat> Jesus said, uh, 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 enter the narrow gate. Uh, Matthew 7. He also said there, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He does the will of my father. 
Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, but he who does the will of my Father. Uh, there's several places that Jesus referred to things like this, and we've looked at, if you want to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, go to your table of contents if you're by with it. That's in the very front. That's where all the, the pages are listed, the books of the Bible. It's easy to find. And so uh, if you'll go there to find the book of Mark 950, go to chapter 1. <clears throat> and we've sort of been using this uh, passage uh, <clears throat> as sort of a, uh, an understanding <clears throat> of what Jesus said uh, in his first sermon, he duplic or he replicates these uh, statements throughout his ministry, but he certainly begins <clears throat> by declaring in his very first sermon in Mark chapter one, it says this. Now, after John, I'm in verse fourteen, chapter one, had been put in, uh, taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel or good news of God, and saying. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, this, these two words, repent and believe, are constant throughout the New Testament. Uh, Jesus refers to this in Luke 13 about repentance. This is a term that, that's pretty familiar. And so I, I want to look at this, and, I, and I've suggested that, that what we understand here is uh, what does God expect from me? This is what he expects. He expects me to embrace my creaturely status. I think that's what repentance means. <clears throat> repentance <clears throat> doesn't mean to feel bad about yourself. It doesn't mean to beat yourself up. It means to change your mind about who's in charge. <clears throat> it, it means to change your mind, <clears throat> literally, to have a new thought. To change your mind <clears throat> about who's in charge. And we've discussed this at some length. If you, I'm not going to go back over it, but there, we've recorded and you can go to the website and, and get some of that. But, but this experience of changing my mind about who's in charge. And notice, what is the change about? Notice here in verse 14, Jesus said the time is fulfilled. Something's here. What is it there? Verse 14, you see it there? What's here? It's, huh? Kingdom of God. Um, I, I translate because it, it, it helps me to say that Jesus is saying, change your mind about who's in charge. The word kingdom, the word kingdom there, uh, can be translated, it comes from the Greek word basileia, which is a, a verb of, or, or a noun of the word basileia, which means this, to rule. To rule. So Jesus is saying, look, there's something here. The rule of God. The the, the rule of God is here. Change your mind about this, about who's in charge. I don't know if I said this here. I've said it in a couple other places lately, but um, <clears throat> I, I was talking to some friends of mine and said, this message of the rule of God, <clears throat> a, a good God who is faithful, a good God who is moral, a good God who is a constant I think that in our culture today, with the way our world politically and emotionally and everything else keeps unwinding, I think the church is positioned in an incredible place to talk to people about a king you can trust, about a ruler you can depend on, about someone who's got 
a, a, a kingdom here that you can enter into and say, you know what, I have every confidence in the world. This king, this ruler, this one is trustworthy. I think we're positioned for that. I think we need to talk about the kingdom of God, the rule of God here. And so that's what Jesus <clears throat> begins to talk about. So in your, on your outline here, <clears throat> we're going to work through this. So how does one embrace their creaturely status? <clears throat> how does one embrace that? Now, what is creaturely status? It, it means realizing I'm the creature and God's the creator. I, <clears throat> I'm the one who should be guided and God is the one who should do the guiding. Most of my problems, I, most, most of my problems in life have been when I've tried to assume the role of creator. The word that comes to mind when I do that is control. I want to control everybody and everything. And if everybody would do what I say, it would be great. Right? <laughs> told them, told them, if my students would do what I say, it would be wonderful. They still don't believe that. <laughs> the, the idea here of creaturely status is taking in, receiving that I need to change my mind about who's in charge, who's in control. And so repentance here is the word that we've been working with. So how do you do this? Here it is on your outline, the place of repentance. And we've talked about this at length, so I'm not going back over, but I just say again, it means to change your mind about who's in charge. It means to change your mind about who's in charge. It is interesting, the word here, the idea, um, is that I'm repenting now or I'm changing my mind about who's in charge because I'm going now to the rule of God. But there are a couple things here I think that I want to touch on I didn't, didn't get to last week in the place of repentance, and th these are them. Number one, repentance is less about doing and more about depending. Again, if I'm the creature and not the creator, what am I going to do? Depend, <laughs> rely on, trust in. That's how you can know if you've, if, you've, if, you've, if you've accepted or you've embraced your creaturely status. You, you begin to trust in another. You begin to rely on another. You begin to change your mind about who's in charge. That, that's, the, that's the standard, if you will, for understanding what creaturely status really is. We struggle with that, don't we? We want to kind of control things. <clears throat> we think that if, if, if the whole world would go the way we think it would, we'd, everything would be great until it did. <laughs> so <clears throat> so here's, here's a couple of ideas about repentance I want to work on. Then we're going to get to faith. Number one, there's an initial experience of repentance where I changed my mind. Some of us could maybe even think about that when that was. <clears throat> there, there's an initial experience of repentance um, and I, I can think back in my life uh, when I sort of made my entry uh, into the kingdom of God, the, the rule of God. When I finally said I was 17 years old, I'd already figured out that I knew everything in the world until I didn't. And then <clears throat> life came crashing in and uh, I repented of Cliff being in charge. So, <clears throat> so there is this idea of initial. And I, I think that's, I think that's pretty, uh, pretty understandable. There's another one here on your outline, though. So I, I just, I want to talk. Here's an idea that this initial matter of repentance is when I finally embrace my creatureliness. When I finally say, okay, I quit fighting. I quit. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to respond to the rule of God. And there's a, 
maybe a moment in time or an experience where we come to that point. It may may take a long time to get there. It may may take a while for us to find that place. But there comes a point where we don't just get religious or we don't just become, uh, you know, religious activities, but where we finally embrace our creatureliness and say, I'm going to turn to you. And many of you have done that. I think of a story that at least that initial part, there's some question about this story, but in 1519, a guy named Hernando Cortez uh, landed uh, on a beach. Do you land a boat or do you beach a boat? <laughs> I hear a, land a boat. <clears throat> See, strange. <clears throat> um, anyway, <clears throat> he washed up on the shore or something. <clears throat> Cortez had been a conquistador and all kinds of stories about him. But, and there's some question about this. There, there's a lot of historical research on this has happened. But in 1519, he goes to, if you will, uh, ends up at uh, Veracruz. And uh, he's going to go on an expedition on the inland part of Mexico. There's this story that they're all hearing about these cities of gold. And several conquistadors have gone there and failed and not been able to conquer and get there. And so <clears throat> Cortez leaves Cuba, he'd come from Spain, left Cuba, and uh, came uh, to Veracruz and gets everybody off the boats and gets them onto the land uh, to get ready to go in to do this rather dangerous and arduous deal. And you probably know the story. The story is that he decided that one of the ways to make this a moment they would never forget, to make this a moment where life changes for them, you know, they're, they're going to do He sends guys out and they burn the boats. Burn them. I mean, these are, these are seafaring boats. These aren't, you know, low, like in Louisiana, we have a P-roll. You know, where you got a little pole. These are seafaring boats. And the, the message is, you're not going back. <laughs> you know, unless you got a boat builder here in the group. Uh, the, the story is those, those men stood there and looked at that and they knew from this point forward, we're not going back. When I think of repentance initially, that's what I think of. Okay, we're going to burn the boats here. I, I, I've, decided, I've decided, if you will, that I'm not longer going to be in control. I'm turning the control of my life over to Jesus and I'm going to burn the boats. It doesn't mean they didn't think about home every once in a while. It doesn't mean they didn't struggle at times, but it meant they made a decision, a time and space where they said, we're not going back. I talk to students about this because there comes a point in your life, I think, in repentance and maybe other things, you have to decide, is this it or not? Is, is this where I change my mind about the rule of God to be the director and guide of my life or not. I think it's initial. But let me ask you to consider this. There's also technology. Here we go. Continual. Continual repentance. This is an interesting idea. That that this idea of continual repentance. I don't know if you know it or not, but when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door at the church in Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517, which was the 500th year anniversary the other day. You know what his number one thesis was in his terms of, he's saying, we got to get this straight. 
Here it was. That the Christian life that our Lord and Master has willed that the entire life of a believer be one of repentance. That the entire life of a believer should be one of continual repentance. Now, I want to dig around in this a little bit. Because uh, open your Bible there, if you will. Let's look here. Go to your table of contents. Find the book of 1 John. 1 John. My Bible is 1171. 1 John. We're going to look here in just a moment. Begins at, begins at verse 5 in chapter 1. This is the message we've heard from Him and announced to you. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him, yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus His Son continually cleanses us from all sin. That last verse there is interesting because the verb here, when it says cleanses, maybe in your Bible you have a footnote and all, but, but this idea of continual repentance or this, this continual life is that as we walk in the light, as we're able to see our lives, as we're able to walk in the light of Jesus, something continually happens. It says here, the blood of his son continually, the verb is in the present tense, continually cleanses. Katharizo is the term here for cleanse, which means to purify. Let me, let me give you another translation. Purify or cleanse here means to will one thing. That's what cleanse means, to will one thing. Let me ask you something. After you burned the boats and you became a follower of Jesus, has God had to work on you a little bit here and there to will one thing? <clears throat> Anybody? Yeah, just me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. See, see, see this idea of continual. So it, 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 the verb is in what we call present dirty. That means it cleanses and keeps on cleansing. Why? Because there are areas of our life that God begins to show us over time that he wants to deal with. I kind of grew up in a tradition that made Christianity kind of magic. You know, you got saved and there you are. You're ready to go. And no talk about maturity, no talk really about growth. It was just, you're saved. Isn't that great? You're going to heaven. But this idea of, of continual repentance is because God is continually working, helping, guiding, directing us to deal with our stuff. I tell my students this. The reason this is necessary, if God showed you everything that was wrong with you when you became a follower of Jesus, what would you have done? I'm getting it up here. Quit. Stop. Yeah. 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 Why? Can't handle it. Can't handle it. See, see this idea that, that, that the blood of Jesus is continually cleansing. Now, I want to talk to some people here today because I don't know if you're like me, but I grew up in a tradition that after I had burned the boats and the idea of, and maybe you've never had this issue, so, but maybe you know friends have. After you burned the boats and after you started this initial, initial repentance, that if you began to find things in your life later, what did that mean? Ooh, I heard that. What? Yeah. 
Isn't that crazy? You aren't saved. Did anybody hear that besides me? Really? Are you backslid? Yeah. I knew a couple people never slid up, but you know. <laughs> I knew one. I'm saying, well, the guy said, yeah, I've been backsliding. No, no, you never slid up. You just, you know. Yeah, you got to slide up first before you can backslide. I, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not trying to put this on everybody else, uh, but that's what I heard. And, and, and it created a paralysis in me. Instead of understanding that continual repentance was the activity of God working in my life to continually get this stuff worked out of me. You know, I, I probably told you, I, 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 uh, I didn't know I was such a control person until I started teaching. When I was a pastor, I knew I couldn't control anybody. You know, you know. But when I started teaching, I thought, you're going to do what I say. Guess what? You got the same thing here? Eric, Eric, Eric teaches over at uh, Seaworth. You thought they were going to just turn two, didn't they? Yes, yes sir. <laughs> no, no, <clears throat> not even close. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I never realized I had that much in me. I mean, the absolute control. And it was tied for me, not Eric, me. I'm just talking about Cliff over here. Umbrella Mercy. It's tied to some pride. And I remember the Lord having to deal with me about that. And, and, and I sensed the Spirit say to me, Cliff, this was years ago. I've been teaching for 26 years. He said, you've never been, wow, it would have been wonderful. You've never been 40. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? Just give me a minute. Man, I remember that. You've never been 40 and have kids here that don't like what you love. That made me mad. <laughs> and God said, we got to deal with this. And you got to repent. You walking in the light. Let me give you an illustration why I do a student. If I had a rheostat here, I'd do this. I do it in the classroom. Very creative. You know, <laughs> a light bulb. Uh, <clears throat> I'll put something down on the front desk in my room and, and, take the lights all the way down and say, okay, now go goofing around when these lights go off, okay? They're college students. <sighs> Man. They start giggling and laughing and, you know, so we don't keep it down long. <laughs> and it's not completely dark. There are some windows. But I say, okay, what's that down there on the table? They don't know. Why not? It's dark. Let me bring it up a little bit. What is it now? Maybe it's a stick. Somebody, no, it's a pen. No, it's a pencil. I like to get them arguing with each other. You know, bring it up a little more. You know, after a while, the light reveals what it is. This, to me, is the way God works in continual repentance. He's just bringing the light up slowly. Gradually, lovingly, so you can deal with it. Not to shame you, not to harm you, not to hurt you, but to heal you, to cleanse you, to walk in the light as that light. Listen, when I first became a Christian, I thought when I prayed to receive Jesus, that was it. 
I'm done. I'm ready to be Billy Graham now, you know? Right? I, that was my tradition. And, and, and we even had, I'm going to get in trouble for the thoughts and opinions of this teacher, not necessarily thoughts and opinions across the community church, it's elders leadership. I'm not sure how to deal with this because I've got some theological bones here from my Western tradition. But we sort of taught people there was another experience after salvation that you didn't have to deal with anything after that. Anybody hear that one? I heard that one. It was kind of what I call destination sickness. I've, I've arrived. It, it, instead of, now let me, let me put it to you. Boy, nobody does much. I, I drew this last Sunday. He's been here all week, so. You better got that. <clears throat> Here's the way graphically I'm, I'm saying. When I become a Christian, there's repentance. We're going we're gonna to talk about faith here hopefully today. There, there's a big R. That's, that's the big, that's burning the boats. That's saying, okay, I'm in. I'm not, no messing around anymore. I'm changing my mind about who's in charge of my life. Then life becomes this. Little R. You're not getting saved again. You're dealing with your stuff. You're just dealing with your stuff. And some of us who grew up in churches where there's lots of shame associated, when we got to these spots, we felt we'd failed. I want to ask you to consider this is not failing. This is leaning into the light. This is leaning into the light. I, I, I'm 63 years old now, and God is still doing some of this, and I'm, I'm somewhat shocked at some of the stuff he's digging around in my soul. I mean, he said, Cliff, here's something at 63 you need to deal with, right? Here's something that I want to deal with. This continual kind, if you will, this continual bringing up the light, Another, another verse you could write in your notes here is 2 Corinthians 3, 15 to 18. 2 Corinthians 3, 15 to 18. I'll just quote it for you, but here's the, 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 the nub of it. Paul says, We all with unveiled face are beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus, are being transformed into the image of God. It doesn't say we've been. It says we are being transformed. I'm not so interested in perfection anymore. I'm interested in progress. Get that now. I'm not, I'm not interested in perfection. I'm interested in progress. That I'm growing. That I'm learning. That I'm developing. And so as a consequence of that, what we find is that repentance isn't just some event at an altar of prayer when I got saved or, or when I came to this conclusion at a, at a conference. It really is this understanding of a continual response to God to say, deal with me. Show me as I'm able to bear it. Show me as I'm able to bear what you need to deal in my life. And as I'm growing and as I'm developing, I'm being more conformed to the image of Jesus. So go back and look at that because it says we're being transformed. It doesn't say we, have, we are transformed. It says we're being. That's a, Again, the verb has the force of it's occurring, it's going on, and it continues to happen. 
Here's the word I use with my students. When you're willing to not only repent or change your mind about who's in charge, but to live that continually, you're coachable. You're coachable. You know, you know people that aren't coachable? Often, not all the time, often it's because of their insecurity. They can't admit they got issues. Can I tell you something? We all got issues. <laughs> okay? Just lean into that. Sometimes there's an insecurity to face it. Because, because we feel like we've got to measure up. This coachable. I, I was thinking about this. I had a good friend named Ralph Beisline. Ralph was a, was a really, really great athlete. Really handsome. We all hated him. And uh, we did. We hated him. He was so handsome and, and athletic and, and could play every sport and dated the girl we all wanted to date. We hated him. Ralph and I played baseball. Uh, not as well. <laughs> I didn't as he did. But <clears throat> I remember uh, I'd had a coach in football. I'm not going to dare call his name. I Googled him today on, to see if he's still alive. I think he is. <laughs> so let's say his name was Bob. I don't know. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> but, but I had a coach in football that I detested. Uh, not because he was not coaching us up, but because he embarrassed us, he shamed us, he constantly denigrated us in front of everyone. And I hate it. But my dad would not let me quit. Uh, my, my dad said, as a young man, he said, you've got to learn to finish stuff. And I said, even if it kills me, <laughs> yeah, if it kills you. So I played football. And I remember Ralph played, and then we went to play baseball. In Texas, all we played was football and baseball. And I went to try out. And Ralph told me, you know who the baseball coach is, don't you? And I said, no. He says, Bob. Let's say his name is Bob. Let's just say. And I said, you're kidding me. Ralph was this incredible athlete. This guy was so micromanaged on Ralph. And this guy was so shameful on Ralph. Before Ralph would play, he would go behind the dugout and throw up. And I'm telling you, this guy in high school was about as big as Eric. He's a big... Not as handsome as you, but no, no. Yeah, yeah. I had to give you that one. Had to give you that one. Had to give you that one. Uh, would go throw it behind the dugout. When I found out that guy was there, I was out taking, I played center field. I, I was taking practice. And I said to the guy, watch this. My dad won't let me quit, but if I don't make the team, I don't have to quit. Right? I was a thinker back then. <laughs> so we're shagging flies. This guy in front of me, you know, gets it and throws the ball. And I said, watch this. I look like Forrest Gump. <laughs> I overrun the ball. It goes over my head. I get the ball. I throw like a rainbow. Like it went past the space shuttle. And then <clears throat> that way. I did it for one reason. One reason. I don't want to be coached by that guy. I, I, I don't want to have to put up with that kind of hostile, shameful pointing out what I couldn't do as a baseball player. That's not what God does. We're not talking about that kind of 
coaching. We're, we're not talking about that kind of, if you will, uh, person who's trying to point this out on you to make you feel bad. This is not God's work. God's work is to cleanse us, to bring us to wholeness, so that as we deal with these issues, we can get them out of our system and go on. But for some of us, any identification of failure is shameful. It's shaming to us. That's not God, Doug. I think part of that is, you said earlier that you raise raises the light slowly, continually, and lovingly. Yeah. And a lot of us grew up that Right. Lovingly. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so th- this, is, this is a very difficult thing for people who've grown up with a lot of shame to let God bring the light up and say, we're, we're fine. We're fine. We're going to be okay, but we're going to deal with this. Cliff, I, I, I want to deal with this. I, I, want to, I, want, I want to bring this to the front. And so I'm going to ask you to consider this week. Here's just a, an application for you. What if this week you thank God, thank Him, thank Him. Don't, don't allow this shame idea. Thank Him if He shows you something which He wants you to repent. And then don't feel bad about yourself. Receive this as Him coaching you up. To say, I want to make you better. I I, I want to help you get through this. I want to help you with this issue. This shame thing is so destructive. And And it really paralyzes us to not deal with our stuff. If, you, if you're getting shamed or you're, you're being told you're no good, it just paralyzes. you can't deal with your stuff. And so I just want to ask you to consider that this idea of continually cleansing us from all sin, continually cleansing us. Go, 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 go read 1 John 1, 7. Go read 2 Corinthians there where this idea of this continual process of, of uh, being thankful to God that he shows you that. Okay, second, we're going to go here on this one. We won't get finished today. The second piece here is believe in the gospel. Jesus said, repent. That's what he expected. And now believe in the good news. This is the first sermon that Jesus ever preached. He asserted we need to believe in the gospel. And you know this. I'm just going to remind you. The word believe sometimes could be translated easily. Trust, depend Rely on. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus said, believe, depend in, depend on the gospel, the good news. In other words, instead of depending on those tapes that are in your head, instead of depending on what your culture tells you, depend on the gospel. Believe in the gospel. Trust in the gospel. So the good news here, the good news. Here again, when sometimes we have to ask ourselves when we've kind of been raised what we have, when did the good news become bad news? <laughs> when did it become bad news to us? That instead of God for us, not against us, instead of God wanting to help us to deal with our stuff, when did it become bad news? When, when, did, when did we get that? It's the good news that Jesus declares. Now he says, believe. Believe in the gospel. Believe in it. Now, here's where the the struggle comes in. And I'm going to end with this and uh, go on. There are are two types of belief in the Bible. Um, 
you can look at this in James chapter 2, verse 19. We need to, we need to make a, clear, a point of clarification here. James 2.19 says, The devils believe that God is one, and they tremble. Now Jesus said we're to believe in the gospel, and here we have a verse that says the devils believe, and they tremble. Um, I had a friend of mine ask me one time, he said, now that's a different term that's in John 3.16, right? And I said, nope, it's not. Same exact word. Same word. Same word in, John, in, Ma- in Mark 1.14. There's only one really word, if you will, in the New Testament for believe, to trust, to have confidence in. But what's happening here is this. There is, in the New Testament, the understanding of what one would call, I'm calling notional faith. Notional. They believe an idea. Uh, it's interesting also in this book of James. James is one of the earliest books of the New Testament. There's a discussion whether it's Mark, James, or Galatians. Some argument there which people that make their living writing books talk about. The fact is James is an early book. Really early. And it's fascinating to me that one of the early books of the New Testament has to clarify this. Interesting. You just think, well, believe. Okay, no, no. There's some some confusion here. There's some confusion in the time of the church here that is having to be clarified. Because he said, the devils believe that God is one. You do well. The demons believe that. You know, you know, God is one. That's the center of Jewish theology. Every, every Jew, every morning wakes up, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, the, the, the idea in, in, in Judaism is the center of Jewish theology is God is one. The center of, of, of Islam is God is great. The center of Christianity is what God is love. I would suggest they all have a center of force of gravity to say, what what do these religions believe? God is God is one. God is great. God is love. So so James is saying you're you're doing great. You've got the center of Jewish theology down. You got it nailed down. God is one. But the devils believe that. And they're not saved. So what is this? This is notional faith that believes in an idea or a concept. I've used this illustration. My mother didn't give me permission to do it, but I will do it anyway. My mom will not fly on an airplane. Uh, I keep telling her, you know, Mom, I have a job. It's harder for me to get to you in Florida than here. Why don't you come see us? Well, I don't think I want to do that. And I say to her, Mom, don't you know the National Transportation Safety Board says more... Yeah, I'm appealing. (laughs) National Transportation Safety Board that more people travel more miles, more safely than any other way to travel. You believe that? Yeah. Uh, Do you believe that I'd put you on an airplane or carrier that would would kill you? No. Do do, do you believe that, you know, thousands and thousands of planes travel every day and people fly in and out? You believe that? Yeah. Let's get on an airplane. No. See, that's notional faith. It believes all the right ideas. But that's not the faith that saves. 
It just believes ideas. It, 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 it believes concepts. And there are a lot of people, you ask, who is Jesus? Son of God, you're saved. Really? I don't know. That, that idea of having a notion or an idea. On the other hand, there's a saving, if you will, faith in belief. And I'm going to give you three really quick criterion, and we'll discuss this in the future some, but I want to, I want to give them to you so we have, you'll have all the blanks filled out today. Okay? Wow. A couple of people just passed out. There are three criterion, it seems, that this faith has to have to not be demonic or not to be just this notional idea. Number one, you have to write this down. It has the correct... Do I have that on here? That's a good slide right there, isn't it? Yeah. That's a good one. Duh. Yeah. Okay. Nobody's coming back to Sunday school next week. Oh, my goodness. What happened here? Anyway, okay, here it is. I forget the slides. Number one, it must have a, the correct object. I, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Faith is object sensitive. Faith is object sensitive. It's not so much, it's not so much that you believe the question is, what do you believe in? Uh, you'll notice in the New Testament that the verses will say it's belief in Jesus Christ. It's belief in God. Faith by itself has little or no value except its relationship to its object. If the object of your faith is unreliable... What's going to happen? Problems, right? I think I told you this. I, I, I have a friend that invested a million dollars in Enron years ago. He completely trusted those guys. So he got all his money back. What was wrong there? The object. He had all the faith in the world in them. So much that he invested a million dollars. That's a lot of faith, isn't it? What's wrong? The object. There are people that are placing their faith in things all the time that they have boatloads of faith, but the object is unreliable. Now, I'm going to press here just for a second. Don't answer this out loud. But some of you know, I've done this before. Some of you have been trained in evangelism explosion. But I was trained that when you talk to people, you ask them, you know, if you were to die tonight, do you know to go to heaven? And some people would say yes. And some people would say no. And then we'd say, well, would you mind if I shared with you how? We were also trained that if someone said yes, to not leave it there. To say, great. Can I ask you one more question? If you were to die tonight and you were to go to the gate and St. Peter's there and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven I was trained that the next thing that came out of their mouth was the real object of their faith. What would you don't say? What would you say? Would you say I've tried to live a good life? Wrong object. Would you say I've 
I've cleaned my life up. Wrong object. Would you say I've 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 done some things in the work of the ministry or I taught at a Christian university? Wrong object. The object is I'm relying on the finished work of Jesus Christ. I'm you can say it different ways. I'm not saying it has to be those exact words. But if it isn't on the finished, complete work of Jesus, if it's baptism, if it's confirmation, if it's, in my opinion, again, you don't have to believe, you don't have to agree with this. If it's, I lived a good life, is it, you know, I taught at a, I've been in the ministry. Wrong answer. It's the finished work of Jesus. So the object of our faith has got to get clear. That's why those prepositions, you believe in the gospel. See it there? Believe in the good news. Not, not about it. Don't believe about the gospel. Don't believe about Jesus. Don't believe about God. Believe in them. Place your faith in. So that's the first thing. Second, I'm going I'm to come back to this. Second, there's another feature I think that we have to have, and that's this. It is often opposite of your feelings. It's often opposite of your feelings. Biblical faith, the object of our faith, is in the finished work of Jesus, and it doesn't, say it carefully here, doesn't matter what you feel. Doesn't matter. The word feeling does not show up in the New Testament, you know. One time, Galatians, where it says, people who are beyond feeling, whose God is their stomach. It's the only time. Why do we place that much emphasis on it? It's often opposite. It's I put my faith in Jesus, what he said, what he declared, regardless of what my feelings are. Anybody had to do that? Yeah. Anybody had to do that where you say, you know what? I know this is what Jesus said. I trust in him. I have confidence in him. I'm trusting that. I'm putting it all in the bank, regardless of my feelings. We'll come back to that. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, we, don't walk, we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. That this idea of feelings has gotten too much credit. And I blame preachers. I do. Sometimes. Not here. I haven't seen, Marty's never done this that I can remember. But you know, you'll hear, hear a great song or something like that and and, uh, you know, great message or something going on. And somebody will say, boy, I tell you, can't you just feel the presence of God? If you didn't feel that, something's wrong with you. Don't let me get it to them. <laughs> I'm going to say, you don't know me well enough to say that. You don't know what I had to go through to get to church this morning. I had three kids that the devil inhabited. <laughs> right? Aren't kids the worst just before church? Right? There's something happens. Don't tell me how I have to feel. Don't tell me that I have to have the same emotional gradient that you've got. You lost your mind? It's a good thing I don't go talk to preachers sometimes. <laughs> You're forcing me to feel what you feel. That's abuse. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. You sung this, haven't you? You know what you're saying? I dare not trust the sweetest frame. What does that word mean? 
she been singing that song all your life. You don't know what you're saying. <laughs> this is not unusual. <laughs> you're okay. Except a couple of these Sooner fans. <laughs> Harsh. Harsh. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That word in 1800 meant feeling. Doesn't that make sense? I dare not trust the sweetest frame. Don't you dare trust your feelings. Now, I'm not saying you can't. I'm not, I'm not saying they're bad. I'm simply saying they can be so out of whack. I, I've got some good friends that have said to me, Cliff, don't, I don't want to just denigrate your feelings. Just say, why am I feeling that way? What's going on? Am I expecting God to make me feel a certain way? It's often opposite. I'm going to show you a little video next week that will illustrate that. We don't have time. Third, this third feature, saving faith acts. Maybe the word is better, obeys. It obeys. Faith, it's saving, obeys. In the church in America, somehow we've sort of separated these at times. But, I mean, just think of it this way. If, if you said to me, Cliff, I want to take you to neighborhood jam for lunch, which would be fine. <laughs> so meet me at the reception desk at 12. If I believe in you, what do you think I'm going to be doing? I'm going to be at this reception desk. If I believe you, if I believe you, I'll act. I'll obey. And the New Testament keeps those things together all the time. I'll, I'll give you the reference. You can look at this. Romans 1.5. Romans 16, 26, John 3, 36, and James 2, 26. i got to shut up here and go, we're going to finish here. What if, what if you decided this week, of those three, is it get, your, get the object correct, opposite your feelings, or action? Do you need to pick one of those and look at that this week? Which one of those, maybe you'd say, I need to give some attention to this. The object, the feelings, or the action. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, thank you for these people. They're so kind and patient. I pray that as we wrestle with some of this stuff, that you'll help clarify matters for our lives. You'll help to enable us to live more fully, just the, the abundant life that you have for us. We ask Jesus that you'd guide us and help us in these matters this week. And we pray it in Jesus' strong name. Amen.